Welcome, my friends, to the show that never ends. This is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick, my co-host, Jennifer Kalari, coming along in just a few minutes. And we are the show that talks about mental health. We talk about all aspects of mental health, and we practice skills, because mental health is a practice. And that's how we do it here. That is exactly... Uh, how we do it. Everybody talks about it, but we need skills. In today's world, you need tools that you can use. Well, when I say you, I mean me. I need tools that I can use uh, just to get through a meal. So that's what we do on the show. Uh, we give uh, we give skills that can be uh, easily accessed, easily used. My partner, Jennifer Kalari, is the founder of ConnectedParenting.com, ConnectedParenting.com. And she has been teaching skills for many, many years, resilient skills, written books, all kinds of media. Puts me to shame. It's not hard to do. I am Mr. Anxiety 2023 and 24, even though we're recording this in 23. I feel that I will win anyway. You picked a good show uh, to join us for because on today's show, a special guest um, she has accomplished more in her 24 years than than anybody I know. She is a climate scientist, but also the founder of the world's largest youth-run mental health organization, Letters to Strangers. Diana Chow is here with us today. Today's show is sponsored by Voice Choice. Voice Choice is the new AI-powered app that lets you instantly write, score, and create your own self-guided meditations for all occasions. Imagine listening to your own voice guiding you. How's that for crazy? Yes, your own voice. Sometimes critical, sometimes kind, but always with you and the closest to you, you can now turn that one, the one that's you, into a voice of support, healing, humor, and empowerment. Voice Choice allows you to make as many meditations as you choose. Daily specific issue meditations, general, dear me, I can rise above all this bullshit. I'm here and I'm okay, just for now. If I had only told myself that a thousand times when I was little, I'd be much taller. This is me, talk soon, whatever you want, set it to your own music, Voice Choice. Check it out at makelightmedia.com. Now, we always like to welcome listeners, whatever emotional state you're in, here are emotional shout-outs. If your Barbies from childhood are on strike and now talking back to you, welcome. If you've decided to have a global housewarming party for your neighbors by bringing extremely hot and spicy food over for a potluck, welcome. If you've decided to give therapy gift cards out to your family members as a nice hint, welcome. If you're trying to avoid conflict by physically dancing away from difficult people, welcome. If you absolutely love the feeling of psychedelics but don't understand why your hands look like blue eagles, welcome. If you've just realized that you're spending $9,000 a month on subscription services you've never used, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Okay, everybody. All right. I know. It's that time again. It's time once again for the share of sharing. It's time for the Lizzo of the limbic system and the Nancy Sinatra of self-parenting, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, one of the biggest uh, mental health leaders, Diana Chow, coming up. Her organization is Letters to Strangers, which writing letters about the things that you can't tell anybody that you feel you can't tell anybody. And so she started this in junior high. So uh, what kinds of stuff do you do with, with families about writing stuff out? Oh, I use that a lot. I mean, there, it, it's funny too, because it's, I find it's better to have pen and paper as well. Not, not just to put it in your computer or on your phone, but to like really write it out. I think that uses a completely different part of your brain and a different part of your emotional system. So I love to actually really have people write things out. Um, I think one of the interesting uses of it, there's two that I can think of. One is when I have young people, little kids, but also adults and young adults who are really anxious about something. 
And then they actually get there. So they make it to that place or they ended up, you know, speaking at that speaking engagement or whatever it is that they were scared about. I have them write a letter to themselves right after it. Hey, me, it's me in the future. And I just went to school all day and it was actually really fun. And here's what was fun about it or whatever thing you're afraid of. Um, Because I find it so nice to have you giving advice to you. So, so often when you're saying to someone, it's going to be okay. And you, you know, you won't, you'll, you'll get through it or it won't be as bad as you think it's going to be. It's somebody else saying that, but when you actually are are going through it and you've done it, write yourself a letter. And I think that's really a powerful, powerful way to convince yourself that you can actually do things. Um, And I use the other way that I use writing a lot with my clients is I have them write a gratitude journal. So write down things that they appreciate, things that they're happy about things that they're grateful for, things that give them joy. Um, And I think that's really important. And again, when it's written, you can, with your hand, I think it accesses a different part of the brain. And it's something that you can keep reading over and over again when you're feeling, um, when you're struggling or you're having a hard time, you can go back and look at your own writing and see things that you've been grateful for and happy about. What's amazing is about self-writing, writing to parts of yourself or writing to you know, a younger part of yourself or an event or something like that, is there's tremendous inner wisdom there is that exists within every person. Absolutely. And you don't know it until you write it out or act it out. Yep. That's very true. It's an excellent point. I have no further questions. No, um, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of amazing. Like a lot of times when we're panicking or when we're overcome by emotions, we don't we don't know that it's in there. We lost the track and the thread, and usually it's just really being honest about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when you're in that in you know, in that intensity, it's usually you're in a state of fight or flight, right? It's your limbic brain. It's the part of your brain that's in survival mode that is taking over the situation, and all of your wisdom, that sort of inner wisdom that comes out when you're calm and you're writing. Um, you don't have access to that in the moment, usually when you're really upset. So it's a lovely, quiet time of reflection. And often it's quite surprising, the inner wisdom that we've collected over the years. It would be great, you know, if I could have, could do this sometimes, and maybe I can, maybe I can remember it. And that is really to call out when I'm in fight or flight to myself. Yeah. Oh, you're in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. That's almost, when you're in real fight or flight, like really, when you're in fight or flight, it's very difficult to do that. Your brain has no access to the part of the brain that could even be aware of that. Like if you're running across the street and avoiding something or something's going to fall on you or you're being, somebody's trying to grab your backpack. I mean, it's, it's literally impossible. But if you're aware that you're in an escalated state and you know that it's not an emergency, it, your body's responding like it's an emergency, but there actually isn't a set of events in front of you that are life-threatening, that's a great thing to do just to go, hmm, I'm in fight or flight right now. I'm, I'm actually physically behaving as if, as if this is life-threatening, but there's really nothing happening around me. That witness state can be very helpful. I remember that I got parking tickets. I had a lot of parking tickets, and I think I maybe even got the Denver boot at one point. And I went out, and there's this orange thing on the wheel of my car. And my first thought was, I'm going to have to move back in with my parents. (laughs) And my parents had been dead for 10 years. So I'm like, but I'm really thinking I'm going to have to move back in with my parents. And I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe there's something to this initial thing of like the shock of something, which usually, you know, for me, it has usually has to do with money stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you get that bill, you get that thing, and then your head goes crazy. Now, now there's a thing to say, okay, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're going to that place. I see it. We've been there before, right? I love that. You know, another thing you can do just for a tip also that really helps is once you've realized, once you've been able to do that for yourself and recognize that you're not actually in danger, um, it's just to take a second and shift your awareness to what's happening in your body. Oh, okay. So where am I feeling this surge of, because really anxiety is just energy. It's energy that your body is building up very quickly in order to give you enough energy to run away or fight something, right? That's 
That's literally what it is. So if you can just take a second and think, oh, that's what anxiety feels like. Oh, it's kind of in my stomach or it's in my heart a little bit or it's in my throat. Interesting. And just take this second and be aware of how that energy feels in your body. It'll take you out of your head and into your body. And it can also assist in shifting you out of fight or flight. There it is. There it is. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different things that are that are available to us in any moment. And uh, really, you said the term emotional first aid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, it's not that we don't know. I don't know why I'm talking like this, but it's not it's not like we don't know that there is self-care. It's just that we don't you know, it's it's hard to allow yourself to actually do it. Yes. Yep, it's true. But it's so helpful when you do. Yeah, I have no further questions. Um, Okay, I'm like a lawyer now. Um, All right. Well, we're going to we're going to move on with our show and bring our guest on. Um, But this is great. I want to remind everybody to go to ConnectedParenting.com where you can find this is Jennifer's organization. It's it's not it's really more it's a worldwide community about um, resilient skills, about learning, about parenting skills, about support for your family, um, support for your neighbors, support for your community, self-care, self-parenting, something that's rarely framed in that way self-parenting skills. It's all kinds of media, books. Jennifer's written many books and and uh, podcasts and videos and all kinds of things that will be helpful uh, for you. So go to connectedparenting.com. Okay, Jennifer is on vacation and wasn't able to be part of this conversation with Diana Chow. So you will hear Diana and I, and you will hear Jennifer next week. I want to bring our guest out here, one of the true leaders in the world of mental health, and certainly youth mental health. She's the founder of LettersToStrangers.org, Letters to Strangers. It is an organization that is the largest youth-run mental health organization in the world. Uh, Diana Chow is here. Diana, first of all, um, thanks for coming, and you know, how, what, what state is your emotional climate in? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I think t- these days, much better than I could have imagined for myself just a few years ago. So not too much to complain about. <laughs> do things still come on you all of a sudden? And what skills do you have? How do you how do you take care of yourself these days? Because you're very busy and you're all you're doing so many different things. What is it that you do for yourself to, to get yourself through if you get into trouble? I think, honestly, the biggest thing is to show myself grace. And what I mean by that is a big reason why I started doing a lot of different things was because I was trying to prove or find some sort of self-worth. And it very quickly became something where I didn't know how to identify myself outside of these things I was doing. But nowadays I'm thinking it, you know, thinking about it more in the sense of if I need to just sit down for a little bit and think about what I need to do or take a break or whatever, that's okay. It doesn't take away from the value of what I can do and the value I inherently have. And that sort of grace to myself helps me actually with my productivity more because then when I'm doing these tasks, I don't necessarily feel as perhaps even guilty um, than I would have felt just a few years ago. Um, And it makes doing the task a lot more enjoyable that way. That's pretty interesting. I experienced that today. I had some old old childhood uh, panic stuff. And, um, you know, I just said to myself, okay, I need a minute. And, and I think one of the most powerful phrases for me is give me a minute or let me get back to you in a minute. I'm going to, let me think about that and I'll get right back to you. Something like that, anything that can create a pause, it just changes everything and you need a little space around it. And if you give yourself space, it, it really is a great, great gift. You don't have to run, you know, according to what's going on around you uh, in your head or in your pacing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just gives you perspective. It gives you instant perspective and it takes the steam out of whatever you're putting on yourself. Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, with Letters to Strangers, 
Can you describe, like, uh, again, like where it started and where it's at today? Yeah. So uh, let me see how I'm trying to keep it a long story short ish. Um, but basically, Letters to Strangers um, it was the brainchild of my own bipolar diagnosis back when I was about 13 years old. Um, at the time, I was a I was an immigrant to the U.S. My parents didn't speak English. Um, we were living below the poverty line. You know, there was a lot of just things that made seeking healthcare very difficult. Um, not to mention mental healthcare at that. And so I ended up writing letters to strangers, and it was actually through these letters that I finally started to question why I could be so kind and empathetic to these people I'd never even met, yet couldn't seem to do the same for myself. Um, and so I started to find my own voice, to find a way to tell my own story, to believe that I have a voice that's worth sharing. And so since it started to help me feel a little bit more in control of my own life, I turned it into a student club at my high school. And at first, it was just my friends who came because I promised them free pizza. But then they kept showing up after the free pizza ran out. And then other people joined. And then people from nearby schools heard about what we were doing. And then they wanted it in as well. And very uh, much serendipitously, it grew to what it is today, the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit. Um, so we work in over 20 countries, directly impacting over 35,000 people every year and over 150,000 people plus um, I would say about indirectly. So people who benefit from having their teachers being trained through our curriculum, uh, who benefit from their schools implementing new programs that our chapters have uh, brought to their administrators' attentions, et cetera. It's, ama- it's, ama- it's spectacular. It's amazing be- because it started with you, you know, writing a letter and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the idea, the power of, of of doing that. Now, with the clubs, with with people, the students that are in clubs, are they? Is anyone? Are are other students reading the letters, um, or where do the letters go? Yeah, so there's a few different ways that letters can be exchanged. The most common way is what we call an in-chapter exchange. And basically, we have our own letter writing protocol where uh, there are art therapy-based themes and guiding questions and a set of guidelines and sample letters for people to follow. So in in in-chapter exchanges, people in the chapter, so the club, will write letters based on that, let's say, monthly or bi-monthly, depending on how frequently they want to do it. Uh, Those things and guiding questions, they submit their letters to a trained moderator in their chapter. And then that person reads the letters to make sure there's nothing that, you know, is cause for immediate concern. And then the letters get anonymously uh, and randomly handed out to people at the next meeting. So then people can read letters from others. Uh, They don't know who exactly it is because it's all their stranger from a stranger, but it's on the same types of topic. And then they have a peer discussion led by the trained um, peer afterwards. And you have a handbook. You have a book that teaches this process and that talks about the organization. And that's that's something that... uh, you did a while ago. Where where can people get that? Yeah, so uh, I believe you're referring to our world's first youth for youth mental health guidebook. So it is uh, quite a big book. It's almost 500 pages, uh, but it dives really deep into intersectional aspects of mental health. So from foundations of mental health to um, how race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, et cetera, can play a role. Um, of course, details on how to run a letter exchange. Um, and it's all written entirely by 14 to 21-year-olds from around the world and reviewed by medical professionals. So it's for free to download digitally on our website, um, letters2strangers.org on our web store page. And then there's a print copy people can purchase as well. That's so wonderful and so fascinating. And and um, the idea of of having it youth for youth is because no one speaks the language uh, like people who are going through it. Mm-hmm. But globally, what there isn't a lot on global mental health. What are some of the challenges of having a global mental health movement and of educating people about what global mental health is? Yeah, for sure. This is something that. 
has been very dear and near to my heart since the organization started. Since I myself am an immigrant, um, I really was tired of hearing things being called global when they were really just in the U.S. and maybe let's say Canada or the U.K. But that to me is not really global when you're neglecting more than half the world's you know population's continents. And so for us, we are a registered charity in India, in uh, Zimbabwe, in Liberia, in Greece, uh, pending in New Zealand, all sorts of uh, things like that. And so a big learning curve has been how do we adapt our teachings and resources in a way that would be culturally relevant, but also maintain the science base that has often been evaluated only within a Western sort of setting. And so that could look like, for example, with our letter exchanges, modifying the theme to be more reflective or understanding of local contexts. Like if we're talking about, let's say, substance, substance abuse, in some places that substance abuse might come from the fact that there's over 90% unemployment among young people. And so they don't have anything else to do except for try to figure out some way of fulfilling their days, usually by engaging in substances. Whereas in other places, substance abuse might be because of a factor of coolness or media influence, things like that. Like those factors can play more of a role in one place over another. And understanding those local contexts has been huge in making sure that we are taking appropriate measures to adapt our programs. So that's why we really emphasize having local grassroots-led clubs. And that's a big part of why we also try to make sure that the local leaders feel they have uh, autonomy, really, to um, make the decisions needed to best suit their community's needs. Amazing. And and how how do people... How do people talk to each other or communicate with each other through the letter program, through letters to strangers? Will letters be passed and maybe translated or how how would it go? Yeah, so... When a, when a chapter is in like an English speaking majority country, then when they do their uh, letter exchanges, they tend to be in English. But for places like, for example, our Greece chapter, uh, when they do letter exchanges and like, you know, facilitate trainings for all of that, that's all going to be in Greek. So then that's going to be a little bit more localized in the sense that whereas a chapter from the US, for example, um, if they have their, you know, in chapter exchange and they want to submit some of the chapters on, uh, some, sorry, some of the letters, onto our online platform as well for the general public to view, they can just go ahead and submit it because we built an online platform for the general public that's in English. For our Greece chapter, they can't necessarily do that online uploading part, um, but they can still um, hold on to the letters if they want to, to exchange with other local organizations if they want in the future beyond their in-chapter exchanges. Yeah. And, and, you know, like you say, there's there are cultural differences, but there but there are commonalities in mental health with everybody, mm-hmm. and and so um, yeah, that would be interesting. You know, trying to to bridge that gap, and I I actually uh, know a person who's going to start traveling around the world so that he can learn different languages and then talk to people about their mental health in those languages. It's a very very smart person, and. Um, so that's a that's like a life project for him. Um, really interesting, but but it's just so big in in scope. But there's not a lot of not a lot of media attention toward global mental health. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I think it's a bilateral situation, and what I mean by that is, on one end, um, frankly, a lot of these places where we work globally um, hold stigmas towards mental illness that have not been. Um, addressed the same way that it is being addressed in a lot of Western nations. So, for example, I come from a tribe, um, a rural village uh, for an ethnic minority in the poorest province of China. If you were to talk about mental illness to my family, which, you know, this is what I personally went through, immediately the questions become something like, well, how can you do this to your family? How can you bring such dishonor and shame? And what does that mean for your marriage ability? If you're a girl and you're going to like potentially pass down these horrible jinx and you, so you can't even marry and have children, what worth or value do you even have anymore? And so having these conversations brings so much shame that if the community themselves can't even talk about it, of course, the media is not going to talk about it because there's no one for the media to really be able to get these perspectives from. Now, on the other hand, though, I would say that um, Western media in general also tends to just focus on what 
is already known, which happens to be more English-speaking, Western-based settings. And that also ties into the way that we currently understand psychology as a knowledge base. When we think about the progress we've made in psychology and psychiatric treatment over the past few centuries, these were almost all predominantly done in these Western settings. So if the settings and the studies and you know the study results and the advancements are all happening in the West, then there's not going to be much for them to report on in those other places where there's not the same amount of attention being put towards development. Well, as a leader and as an advocate, uh, you know, and you travel a lot uh, around the world, what kinds of things do you talk about, not only letters to strangers, but issues that come up around mental mental health and mental well-being, like, um, you know, the the idea that emotions are meant to be felt and that they can't really, they can't really kill you, but people feel like they can. So they keep them, you know, stored up or not, you know, basically not feeling their emotions and carrying them around with them, especially trauma nowadays. You, when you talk to people, this is like a whole open world. And it's almost like people are coming out of the shadows and they all carry this trauma within mm-hmm. them that they've never talked about. So how do you how do you as a mental health advocate and a leader how do you how do you deal with those kinds of situations and interactions I think there are three guiding principles I hold myself to in these conversations. Uh, first is understanding that vulnerability is something that I would like to show first in the sense that I don't know to what extent a person might be sensitive to these co- types of conversations. Perhaps it could even endanger them if they, quote unquote, admitted to having certain types of thoughts. And so um, I am in a slightly safer place, um, mentally speaking, and also maybe socially speaking. Um, Then if that is the case, and I can share my own story to the extent I myself feel comfortable, just to let them know that, hey, even if you don't want to share what you're going through, I want you to hear that there's another story that might be similar to yours. And so you're not alone. And um, I went through something that I was hopefully able to get out of. And that's very possible for you too. Um, The second thing is then to, to, when talking about, uh, talking about these things with them to um, take a very gentle approach, you know, people often do want to talk about things, but the more you push them in a way that makes them uncomfortable, the more they're going to turn away and perhaps never open up again. So really adopting active listening and a non-judgmental sort of approach, uh, letting them talk when they want to talk, don't talk, just setting the silence, if that's what they prefer, giving them the space to process and do what they need to do, just so that they know you're not there to try to tell them how to fix their own life, because that's not your job. And you probably don't really know the best answer anyway. But rather that you're just there to walk alongside them and let them know that they don't have to travel this road alone. And then the third thing is really focusing on education. So making sure that I myself am up to date on the various new research findings, especially from a global perspective, on understanding perhaps local context, maybe local um, context in terms of history. Maybe there's there was like war or conflict recently. Maybe there are still um, you know socioeconomic divides that are very apparent, things like that. Um, and just in general, understanding those things also gives me a better way of talking about these topics in a way that might be more um, easy to receive for that person. So if I could relate a mental health symptom to um, something that they go through as part of a local spiritual journey, uh, maybe that will make it a little bit more acceptable for them, things like that. You know, a, a lot of people are listening and they're saying, you know, I can really relate to Diane and, and I and I've had similar things that have happened to me or whatever. The thing is, you're 24 years old, and you founded the world's largest youth-led uh, mental health organization, and you're a climate scientist, and you graduated Princeton, and you where you came from and where you got to are, are kind of two different places. So while, while I know that we share a lot of things, uh, I did not go to Princeton, and I am <laughs> not a climate scientist. <laughs> And I and thank God that I'm not, because the world would be in real trouble oh uh, if that were the case. Um, so, yeah, uh, how how did you manage all these things? And how does being a climate scientist affect your daily life and how you look at the world? Mm, I guess I'll address the first question first, which is, you know, I think I've been very lucky to have accumulated quite a number of 
very random but very fulfilling experiences in my life so far. Um, but I always tell people that it was random, like truly in the sense that I, what, what, whatever people might call my accomplishments or whatever, they were all done so very obliquely. I didn't, for example, start Letters to Strangers intending for it to grow into a big thing. I didn't like even put it on my college apps because I was so afraid based on what other people told me that like a college would view me as a liability if I admitted to having a mental illness that I just like wanted to erase it from my history. And so for me, when I do these things, it was more like, oh, I want to do it well. I care about it. And also sort of like hearkening back to what I said earlier, I felt a lot of guilt for just existing. And so to sort of find some way of proving my worth, um, if I could do this thing, maybe a little bit right, then maybe I earned a little bit more of that second chance to um, live this life. So that's kind of the way I approach things for most of my life. Um, and I think also because my parents... Um, because my family was a situation it was, and I became my brother's legal guardian um, at a very young age, um, I didn't really have an understanding of what is like maybe a social constraint of like, oh, kids this age should do that. Kids that age should do this because I, th that wasn't an option. And so by sort of forcing myself to just take on all these different jobs as a mere fact of survival, I <laughs> kind of luckily came out um, learning a lot of skill sets that still help me to this day. Um, and so that ties into the climate stuff I do now where, um, you know, I uh, work with modeling hurricanes and, you know, it's a little sad for sure to see the state of humanity and the earth that we all share. But um, I think it is also really amazing to know that we are now in an age where there's so much amazing tech um, that can allow us to understand and prepare for a better world. If only more of us, especially the leaders, um, took advantage of the amazing tools and voices we have in our corners. Yeah. So, so that's, that's a big part of it, right? Is, is doing the research and getting, uh, getting leaders to listen and getting to make policy changes. Is that something that you, is that something that you do or that you work toward? So when it comes to climate stuff, not as much because I realized that um, talking about, advocacy to policymakers is so draining that I already do it with mental health. If I do it with climate too, I think I would just, I would not have enough balance in my life. Um, so climate stuff and more strictly a scientist, I'm like, okay, people can advocate. I'll just provide the data that they need. Um, and then from a mental health perspective, we do a lot of advocacy work, especially with international governments and organizations. Um, since I think in the States and also in, let's say the UK, there's quite a few great efforts already to really push for that advocacy level, uh, sorry, that legislative level change. I'm not saying that, you know, those changes are actually happening because we see so many bills get like just stuck on the house floor, which sucks. But there are more people fighting for these things in the US and the UK than we see in so many of the countries we're working. So that's where we try to um, really make sure that whatever advocacy goals we advocate for have an international adaptability to it. Well, to just to switch gears a little bit, because climate science is so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, what, it, social media, mm. you know, I know that, that um, you know, the organization is pretty active on social media. And in this case, it's a great tool to connect people. Um, but there's so much of social media that is really affecting, you know, the way we live and the way we are with each other. So what do you do? to deal with that, having this organization that, that really is, you know, is helped by getting the word out through social media. Um, how do you approach it? It's definitely a double-edged sword. And I think part of what makes it so difficult is that in a lot of online spaces now, mental health is talked about more and more, which is amazing. But it's often talked about um, without being followed up with the necessary education. And so what we see is what I call a trendification of mental illness, where it becomes almost cool or hip to have symptoms that are just 
enough to be quote unquote quirky, but not enough to scare people away. And it's honestly heartbreaking. I had a high schooler come up to me and tell me, oh, Diana, you must feel so lucky to have bipolar disorder because everyone has depression and anxiety now. It's not cool anymore. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what about me like wanting to just disappear so badly is in any shape or way cool. But that's the situation is that when people are so isolated from each other physically, but then you build the sense of, you know, parasocial relationship, you feel like you're connected online. There's so much dissonance going on and there's no actual, you know, f- feedback loop to help you perhaps go back to an equilibrium because you can build your own echo chamber to hear what you want to hear. And so that's what we try to address um, with our social media strategy, where when we post things, it's really focused on education, it's focused on the facts, it's focused on sharing stories in a very real way, both the good and the bad. Um, and so if we do see something that you know contributes to those issues I was talking about earlier, we will try to point it out. But the key thing is to not engage with or amplify that type of content. Yeah, so you're making you make choices about it, like conscious choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was uh, I met someone. We there's this great organization called the Confess Project, and they train barbers uh, and hairstylists to be mental health advocates around the country. They're an amazing organization. And within that conference that I went to, uh, one of the things we talked about was your relationship with your phone. Mm. and how it's an actual relationship and how you have to make choices about like when you put it down and when you use it and when you put it away, it's a tool, you know, that all of these things are tools, but they become ways of living. So um, that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, um, This woman who has a great, great mind for this said, you know, you don't take your, you don't invite everybody to dinner. You don't invite everybody to the bathroom. You don't invite everybody into your bedroom. Why would you do it with your phone? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so to think about that and actually make choices. Now, I'm not, I'm not great at it, but just to have that awareness is really, um, you know, is, re- is really important. And to say, you know, what you put into your head matters. Like, do I need to be watching Breaking Bad before I go to bed? Like, is that absolutely necessary (laughs) or or can i do am i listening to this podcast about serial killers while i'm walking by the ocean is that necessary no but i mean i find myself you know and i and and now i now i don't now i stop it or if i'm looking at the news i will look at something for like five or ten minutes but then i have to shut it down Mm. Um, i have to just stop it so it's the stopping and starting you know stopping is an action so these are these are things that I think about now. The and other you know, thing, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say that I think you know I think it's so much. It's made so much more difficult after the pandemic because we got so used to having everything be replaced by that digital connection out of necessity or otherwise. And I think especially for young folks, like I was part of that Zoomer generation where you know we went to school online, and so if every part of your life is like that and all of your social relationships, especially ones that you're forming in your formative years are also only being built online, then of course it's going to feel so much more difficult to separate out your phone or other digital devices from your daily life because it is an extension of your very like fabric of being by that point. So that's something that um, I try to tell parents about, for example, um, to be a little bit more patient with their kids um, if they see that a kid is like addicted to their phone or something because well think about the perspective and the context right absolutely and how do you get across like i grew up uh you know in the 1800s of course but i grew up (laughs) a long time ago and and when i grew up i grew up around three generations of family members telling stories around a table so a lot of my you know a lot of it was listening Mm. to their storytelling and they would share their lives or complain, you know, whatever they do. But I really did feel like I belonged to something when I sat at the table. Uh, and so how do you get the idea across that there is a community feeling when you sit with somebody and talk with them in today's world? It's really tough. I have to admit that, and this is something that I heard other people tell me as well, is that sometimes like when I go through my daily life, a moment happens and I'm like, oh, I should post about this on Instagram 
or, oh, how would I caption this? And like, I don't want to think that way. I want to just live life in the moment and enjoy it. But it's become so ingrained that it's so hard to just have that conversation with someone and just live there and not have it be tied to anything after the fact. And I don't even use social media that much. I post like once a quarter, like an actual post. So for people who are on it way more like chronically than me, I can only imagine the extent to which it interferes with our ability to have an actual sit down conversation just as people. And so part of it is why, um, you know, letters to strangers, we focus on things like handwriting letters as much as possible. That moment when you are forced to really just slow down and write down every thought you have, but also know that someone else is going to read it and then have that set amount of time where, you know, you're reading each other's letters, you have that peer discussion, and it's all within this very safe space. Um, it is very different um, of an experience for so many of our members because so many of us are used to typing all the time. I know I type way faster than I handwrite. So when you suddenly have to be slowed down in that way and you don't have a backspace button, you can't just control Z, you really have to just practice mindfulness in a very forced way, um, but in a very gently forced way. Um, I think that is the first time for a lot of our folks um, to really experience something like that. Well, I think that, I think that maybe there's going to be th- things that'll arise like talking clubs or like, Mm. you know, walking and talking clubs or whatever, you know, however, that'll actually be a conscious thing that you do. It used to be something that just happens. So these things don't just happen anymore. I mean, they happen online, but they don't happen in life, you know, in in the physical form. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask you, and we'll we'll wrap up here, but I'm interested in this. How do you how do you manage um, being bipolar? How do you take care of yourself and, and what do you do? Yeah, this is a really good question because I think sometimes people look at the stuff I balance or do and they are like, oh, well, you know, how are you, how, how can you even do all this anyway if you are like mentally ill or whatever? And I'm like, the thing is, mm, I know by now, the types of episodes I have. And so I know when I'm starting to exhibit hypomanic behavior, I know when I'm starting to go into like a depressive slump, just because I know it doesn't necessarily mean I can't really do anything about it, but I can take a little bit more of a preventative measure than I could when I was younger. So that means if I know that I'm heading into a very dark space, uh, maybe I need to move my meetings around. Maybe I need to take advantage of when I'm a little more hypomanic and channel that energy towards doing something more productive, because I know what will likely follow is a period of barely being able to do anything. Um, And also, I would say exploring different types of therapy has helped a lot. Uh, That's one thing that also I think I learned from like this like global perspective is that a lot of times, especially in the West, when we talk about therapy, we talk about like CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, the typical talk therapy people think about. And it's really wonderful, but it also might not be the best therapy method for every single person. And so for someone like me, where so much of my shame and self-hatred was tied to a communal value, when a therapist is asking me like, oh, how do you feel about this? What do you want? I have no idea how to answer because I have to first get to a point where I even care about my own thoughts first. And I was not at that point. That individualistic type of thinking felt like a sense of betrayal. And so for me to explore other types of therapy like EMDR, like that helped me a lot more, personally speaking. And then also, you know, starting to engage in medication regimens and figuring out something that works for me. So really taking a multi-pronged approach with cultural considerations in mind. Very, yeah, that's very interesting. And, and it, it, it's sort of like, it, it could be like riding a roller coaster, but it's really, you know, they talk a lot about your emotions. It's like surfing waves. Mm. They come in waves and it's fluid. And sometimes it comes and it goes, but, you know, the big, the big waves you know, change when, when you have awareness. Awareness seems to be the key of a lot of this. Mm. Um, just that you're aware that you notice it happening. Uh, and then you can make choices once you notice that it's happening. But the first thing is you just noticing. And you hear this stuff a lot, but practicing it is such a big thing because all of this stuff is, is skills. That we, we've talked about, and it's great that people talk about mental health, but it is not a topic it is a practice. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you know, if we if we keep talking but don't do anything differently, we're walking around talking to each other about what's what doesn't what's not right with us or what doesn't feel right or what's difficult, which is one thing. But then 
you know, just making these small shifts, like just saying to your saying to myself this morning, I need a little space. Just saying it in my head shifted things. Um, it is amazing how simple it is and how far away it seems. But the first thing is, wow, I noticed that I'm really, you know, amped up or I'm really, um, you know, fearful or, you know, I just had a conversation. Maybe there was some interaction that uh, trip, trip triggered something in me. Yeah. So, you know, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just like, I think what you said was so valid. And I wanted to just add on perhaps a little thought for um, listeners to think about in line uh, with what you said, which is so many times we think about monitoring our mental well-being as something that's within our head. Like, oh, what am I thinking? How am I feeling? Which is all very valid. But oftentimes our bodies show signs before our mind even registers it. And so noticing those physical symptoms, physical repeated behaviors that you might be exhibiting when it comes to feeling stressed or anxious, that can very um, often be a way to notice or you know build that awareness without having to wait until your mind becomes this overwhelming sense of just like blob, like whatever blob of thoughts it is. And so like, for example, the whole concept of psychosomatic symptoms, right, or physical manifestations of psychological distress has been linked to so many types of illnesses where, for example, for myself, I went blind for half of high school and I went to hundreds of specialists, did hundreds of tests, not a single thing came back with a problem. So nobody could figure out why the heck I was having these episodes. But then as my mental health got better, so did my eyes. I went from being in and out of the hospital basically every week to being eye episode free for the past four to five years. And the only thing that really changed was that my mental health really truly started to get better because I started to take treatment um, to the next level. And so I, I wish you know people had more discussion about that mind-body connection to be more aware of the ways that our physical body responds to these uh, stressors so that we can take more proactive care of ourselves and each other. Yeah, that's, that's a, a big... That's a big key that, you know, treating mental health like physical health is like a big, a big making that jump. You know, there, there, this is going to sound, first of all, I, I, it's, it's amazing to, to think of the fact that you couldn't see. I mean, that's pretty extreme. Hmm. Uh, and then, and then getting your sight back. I can't think of like something that's more graphic than that and such a reminder of, you know, how to, that you do need to take care of yourself. Um, but at that age and at that time and in those circumstances, who knew? Yeah, it was right? really tough. And it's kind of amazing to me when I think back on it, that the first person who told me after like three years of this, who told me that it might be psychosomatic was a Vietnamese American ophthalmologist. And a big reason why she mentioned this was because a lot of refugees from the Cold War from Southeast Asia, especially after the Cambodian genocide and the Vietnam War, a lot of them had symptoms uh, where, you know, they were having eye issues, uh, hair, hearing problems, things like that, that couldn't be justified or explained using just regular tests. And a lot of that ended up being traced back to trauma. So having that cultural context and knowing that there was like starting to be a little bit of research on that gave her the insight to tell me something that allowed me to take my own mental health more seriously and then ergo my own physical health getting better. So that is yet another example of why it's so important to have these cultural contexts in mind because that can really affect every aspect of our lives. Well, yeah, and I uh, this is a strange uh, topic to bring up or a segue. There is a television show called The Bear. It is an excellent, excellent show. But why I bring it up is because there are scenes in The Bear where people are having arguments and there's a lot of conflict. And what they do is they take their hand and they hold it into a fist, and then they rub it on their chest. And that is a signal that they are feeling sorry and that they want the arguing to stop, and it's an agreement, and then the other person starts doing the same thing. I cannot say enough about how that affected me. Doing physical things, putting your hand on your solar plexus, Hmm. putting your hand on your head, rubbing, you know, holding your own hand, these kinds of like simple things, snapping your finger, if uh, there's an emotional cue or something that brings up something in you, these are like things that really are powerful. And we haven't learned, you know, that language. Nobody ever told me, you know, this is why people put their hand on their forehead. They're trying to, 
you know, get the blood, you know, it's a, it's an electromagnetic thing that people do unconsciously, but it's really a way of connecting with yourself Mm -hmm. and you can do it and it could make a big change. So I just want to say there's like, not only is there a mind body connection, you can, while you're in the middle of a conversation, actually, you know, rub your hand, do, do a small action and it will, it will let you be present. It'll help you be present. It'll help you take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so I saw it in this show and I had never seen that particular movement, but it was really cool because these people were in the middle of a knockdown drag out argument. And then, and then one of them just starts rubbing just, uh, and, and then you see it and you know, up oh, here's the cue. It's time to stop what we're doing. And then they do it. Um, mm, I just awesome. loved it. Yeah. It's on, it's on a show called the bear, which is on Hulu. It's a spectacular show. It's very well done. The characters are very well drawn. Well, listen, I, uh, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. This is the second time we've done this and, and you've bared, you've bared with me. And, uh, and this one we got, we got everything that we need. Uh, and I want to tell people again, uh, you can go to letters to strangers.com. Dot org. Dot <laughs> org. Don't go to dot com because that's something different. Letters to strangers.org. Uh, you can learn about the work that goes on there, about the organization, an amazing organization to join and support. And you can follow Diana Chow uh, on social media. Where do they go to follow you? Yeah, so uh, I am on Instagram at Dizodin, D-I-Z-Z-O-D-I-N. Uh, that's a public profile. And then Letters to Strangers is on social media at L2S Mental Health. And the two is the number two uh, in this case, because it was you know, cool back then to spell things like that. So L number two as mental health. Fantastic. Well, you, your comeback, you know, I, you've already done, done twice. So I'll, I'll give you a little break, but I do want you to come back. I appreciate uh, that. You're not tired of me yet. (laughs) Oh my God. You are such a pleasure to talk to and such an inspiration and so interesting the way you think about things and the clarity with which you, you know, explore these, these difficult subjects. And I do want to encourage people, if you haven't seen it, go to see uh, Diana's TED Talk, <laughs> which happened a little while ago, but it is very powerful. And you go, go on TED Talks and just type in the name Diana Chow, D-I-A-N-A-C-H-A-O, and see this talk. Um, okay, that's our show. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my partner, Jennifer Kalari. Uh, go to ConnectedParenting.com to uh, find out about her amazing work in this global organization that she has of services and media and books and, and classes. So ConnectedParenting.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can go to uh, MakeLightMedia.com, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, Media.com. Things are looking up. You can too. And, and Diana, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.